If you would open up to Matthew chapter 5. I've been asked to do a couple things tonight um, to introduce the whole Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes at the beginning of it. Um, and then also to look at the first um, Beatitude. But I, but I think that's going to be, uh, those, those two things are going to kind of fit together because I think we're going to see that the first Beatitude is, is kind of an introduction of itself. It's kind of an introduction to the Beatitudes and, and an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount it, itself. Um, and, and so really the, the first question that we can ask as we come to this is, is what is the Sermon on the Mount? What are the Beatitudes? And kind of what's the purpose, right? Why is Jesus telling these Beatitudes? And as he's, as he's saying this, what is he even talking about? Okay. And as I was uh, thinking about this and, and reading what some other people were writing about, about these, um, there was one guy who said that he had counted up uh, as he was looking at what other people had, had, had written about these and other people had said about these. Um, he said that he had counted up 36 different ideas about what the Beatitudes are, are about and what the Beatitudes are, are for. 36 different people had said that there are 36 different things. Okay? I'm not going to tell you what all 36 of those are. Um, you're welcome. He didn't, even, he didn't even list what all 36 of them were. He listed nine. He said these are kind of the top, the top nine, the most, uh, the, the, the most popular kind of nine ideas about what the Sermon on the Mount is about or what the, specifically the Beatitudes are, are about or what, what it is that they're describing. Um, and I'm not even going to tell you all, all nine of those. Uh, but I am gonna, I am gonna look at three, kind of three different, different things, and, and then I'll tell you what I, what I think it is, and, and we'll move into, uh, we'll move into, um, the, the first beatitude. Okay? And so when, when, when Jesus talks about, you know, blessed are, the first beatitude is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are, uh, those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, uh, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then uh, verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Okay, so when Jesus is talking about is is talking about these things, as he's describing uh, describing these, these these eight or nine different um, or nine or ten different uh, different beatitudes, depending on how you how you count them, um, the last one can be counted as two or, or it can be counted as as one. Uh, but when he's saying this, what is he even talking about? Is he talking about just regular believers, or is he talking about about something else? And so some people have said that the Beatitudes, what, what, what Jesus is doing here is he's describing like a, like a higher standard. He's describing like a, a higher ethic. And so he's saying, you know, regular, regular believers, regular Christians should just kind of be, uh, you know, do the best they can, you might say. Um, but, but these, these Beatitudes are for, uh, are, are a higher standard or a higher morality for pastors or, or even for monks that, that live in monasteries. Right. And so this is kind of the standard they live up to. And then there's, then there's another standard that, that just regular believers live up to. Right. I, I, th- I think that's wrong. I don't think that that's right. Another another uh, person, uh, Martin Luther, and, and of course, others have followed him. He said that what's going on here is that this is the exact same thing as, as Moses giving the Ten Commandments and, and Moses giving the law. And we'll even look and we'll see some some similarities between what Jesus is doing and, and what Moses did or what God did through Moses. And, but Luther says it's for the same reason. And so Moses gave the old, the, the Ten Commandments, God gave the, the law through Moses, and the purpose was to show people their sin, right? 
uh, the, the Old Testament says that you shall honor your mom and dad. Well, we know that we don't do that perfectly, and we can't do that perfectly, and so that teaches us that we need a Savior. That teaches us that we need someone to come and save us from our sins. And, and the other Ten Commandments and the rest of the law of the Old Testament is the same way. In, in Galatians, Paul talks about this, how the law was given to show us our sin so that we would then turn to, turn, to, turn to God, cry out to God for a Savior, and turn to Christ who is a Savior. And so Martin Luther says that the, the, the Beatitudes are the same way. And so when we read in, in the Beatitudes, we read, you know, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. That's supposed to teach us that we can't be merciful. That's supposed to show us our sin as every day we're unmerciful toward people. And so that should, that should make us turn, turn toward Christ and rely on Christ more. Okay? There, that's kind of interesting, but I don't, I don't think that that's right either. Okay? But that was an, uh, another idea. Okay? There, there's a third idea, and this is, um, this is, is made famous kind of by, by dispensational people, like the Schofield Reference Bible, if, if you've ever heard of that or used one of, one of those. And, and in the Schofield Reference Bible, Schofield says that, that this is a set of ethics for the world um, as we wait on Christ. And so this is kind of how the church is supposed to live uh, until we wait on Jesus to come back. And then when Jesus comes back, then we'll get a new set of laws or, or we'll go to heaven and, and we'll have a, have a new ethic or new morality there. But these are kind of an interim, kind of an interim law that the church is supposed to live, live under until, until Christ returns. I don't, I don't think that's exactly right either. Okay. Um, before I tell you what, what I think is happening here, what I think is going on here, let, let's look at a couple of things. Look at, at Matthew chapter 3. Okay, because when you're, when, when you're, when you're looking at one of the, one of the, um, when you're looking at one of the gospels, it's not, we're not just asking the question, what did Jesus say, right, or, or what did Jesus do, but we're also looking at how, how it relates to other things in the same gospel, how it relates to other things in, in Jesus' life. Why, why did, not, not just why did Jesus say this, but why did he say this here, right? Why did he not say it later? Or why did Matthew write this here? Why did, not Ma- why did Matthew not write it in chapter 7 or chapter 10 or chapter 12 or whatever? Okay? So look at, look at Matthew chapter 3 and look at verses 1 and 2. Okay? This is talking about John the Baptist. This is before Jesus has been born. Okay? And it says, uh, verse 1 says, In those days... Actually, I think it... Actually, it's, maybe it's not before Jesus. It's not before Jesus has been born. But this is, this is uh, John the Baptist's ministry. It says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And look what he's preaching. Verse 2 says, Here's what he's preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay? For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And so this is what John is preaching. John is, is preaching in preparation for Jesus, preparing the way for the Christ to come. And, and what he's preaching is, Repent. And the reason you should repent is because the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is on the way. Repent because the kingdom of God is coming. Okay, turn to Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Okay, so this is after, after Jesus has been baptized, after Jesus has been tempted in, in the wilderness by Satan. And it, it says he begins his ministry there uh, in verse 12. And then down in verse 17 it says, From that time, so beginning then, Jesus began preaching. Okay, and here's what Jesus preached. Jesus began preaching, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay, so Jesus is preaching the same thing that John the Baptist preached, right? John the Baptist says, Preach, because, the, or John the Baptist says, Repent, because the kingdom of God is coming. Jesus says, Repent, because the kingdom of God is here, because the kingdom of God is at hand. Okay, look, this is really neat too. Look back up in, in chapter 4, up to verse, um, verse 8 and 9. Okay, this is Satan tempting Jesus. What was one of the temptations that, that Satan gave to Jesus? Look what he says in verse, verse 8. He says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. 
Verse 9, And he said to him, that Satan said to Jesus, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And of course, Jesus didn't do that, refused to do that. He said, Get away from me, Satan. Um, but, but look at what, what Satan's doing. Satan is tempting Jesus, and, and what he's saying is, if you, trade, if you trade kingdoms with me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. Right? Jesus is saying, repent, because the kingdom is at hand. The reason the kingdom is at hand is because the king is at hand. Right? John the Baptist says, repent, because the kingdom is on the way. And the reason the kingdom's on the way is because the king is on the way. Jesus is on the way. Jesus, in, in chapter 4, says, repent, because the kingdom is at hand. The reason the kingdom is at hand, the reason the kingdom is here, is because Jesus is here. The king is here. Okay? And Satan comes to Jesus, and one of his temptations is, hey, look at all these different kingdoms of the world. Right? How many ever there were? Say there's ten. Look at all these, all these different kingdoms of the world. There are ten here. You have one kingdom. If you trade that one, if you bow down and worship me, and, and so in, in doing that, you, you, you give up the kingdom that you have, then I'll give you all these other ten kingdoms of, of the world. And, and, and Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do that. Okay? And so here's what I think, here's what I think the, the kingdom, or here's what I think the Beatitudes are. Look again at the end of, of chapter uh, 4, moving into the Beatitudes. Look, look what, what Matthew says, starting in verse 23. It says, he went throughout all Galilee, that's Jesus, Jesus went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease of every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and, uh, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee to the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Okay, and then it moves right into chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Okay, so these great, these great crowds are following him. Uh, Jesus goes up on the mountain. As he sees the great crowds there, he goes up on the mountain and sits down, and we're going to see that he begins to teach. Okay, but, but it's very interesting to see, see exactly what Matthew says. Back, way back in verse 23, it says, he, he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Well, how did he proclaim the gospel of the kingdom? The way that he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom was by healing every disease and every affliction among the people, so his fame spread throughout all Syria. That's part of his proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. Right, the king is here. The kingdom is here, and the evidence of the, of the fact that the kingdom is here is now I'm healing these these diseases. I'm healing these afflictions, and it names all these different people that he's healing, and it says all these people were following him because of the evidence that, that he's giving that he is the true king. And it says he sat down on the mountain, sat down um, on, on on the mount. Uh, it doesn't name the mountain. He sat down on the mountain, and he began to teach the disciples, and he began to teach the the crowds that were there. Okay, so here's what I, what I think is happening in the Sermon on the Mount. And, and in, in the Beatitudes, I, I think Jesus is saying, or Matthew's saying that Jesus began to preach the kingdom. Okay, and then here's how he preached it, right? Starting with the Beatitudes. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus preaching the kingdom, preaching that the kingdom has come, that the kingdom is here. Preaching what does it mean to be part of the kingdom of God? What does it mean to be a follower of the king of God? Okay, and so I think the Beatitudes are a description of life in the kingdom of God. And, I, and, and we go through all of the Sermon on the Mount. If we were to go all the way through to the end of chapter 7, I think this is, one, is, is a big sermon where Jesus is explaining what does the kingdom of God look like? How do you get into the kingdom of God? We'll see tonight. And then what does it look like to live in the kingdom of God? What, what does it look like as you're living in the kingdom of, of God? It's, it's a description of the character of God's king and a description of what his subject should be like. It's a description of the character of the king and a description of what his subject should be like. Okay, so listen to what, what J.C. Ryle says. J.C. Ryle says, Would we know what kind of people Christians ought to be? Would we know the character at which Christians ought to aim? 
Will we know the outward walk and the inward habit of mind which become a follower of Christ? Then let us often study the Sermon on the Mount. Let us often ponder each sentence and prove ourselves by it. Not least, let us often consider who they are that are called blessed at the beginning of the sermon. Those whom the great high priest blesses are blessed indeed. Okay, so J.C. Ross says, if we want to know what a Christian is supposed to be like, if we want to know what a follower of Christ, what a follower of the king, what a subject of the kingdom of God is supposed to be like, if we want to know what we should, how we should think and, and how we should act and how we should live and how we, we should look at other people and how we should look at ourselves, J.C. Ross says the best way for us to, to know that is by looking to this sermon that Jesus preaches where he's explaining what does it mean to be part of the kingdom. Where he's explaining what, is, what does it mean to be a subject, a follower of the king. Okay, and so if we, if we look at, at verses 1 and 2, at the very beginning here, verses 1 and 2, it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, talking about Jesus, of course, his disciples came to him. And then verse 2 says, He opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying... And then it goes into the first beatitude there. Okay, obviously there are some, uh, some similarities here between, uh, between Jesus and Moses, right? Jesus, or, or Moses, I'm sorry, uh, went up on the mountain and he received the Ten Commandments from God on the mountain. Jesus went up on the mountain and he began to preach this, this sermon, the, the, the Sermon on the Mount and, and, and the Beatitudes. And so there's some obvious, uh, there are some obvious connections between this sermon and between the giving of, of the Ten Commandments. And I think that's on purpose. I think that's on purpose, okay? Um, we see at the very beginning here, it says that Jesus went up on the mountain, and what did he do? He went up on the mountain, and he sat down. Okay, well, what's significant about that? Why does that matter? Well, because as I was reading, um, several people pointed out that, 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 that sitting down is the normal position that a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi, would take as he's beginning to teach. Right? Normally, the Jewish rabbi would stand up to read the, read the scripture, stand up to read the Old Testament, and then as he finished reading, he would sit down, and he would teach from a, from a sitting position. And so Jesus goes up on the mountain, Jesus sits down, and so I think what he's doing is he, he's showing himself, he's, he's, he's presenting himself to the, to the crowd there as an authoritative teacher uh, for his disciples and for the crowd that, that was gathering there among them. He's sitting down as an authoritative teacher. And, we're, and actually, we won't see. I started to say we'll see. If we were to keep going through the, through the, through the, through the sermon, look, look, over at, um, look over at verse, verse 27, for example. Verse 27, this is, this is him beginning to teach about lust. And he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Okay, but verse 28 says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with, his lustful, uh, with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And I'm sure you've heard this before, but one thing we see there is we see, we see Jesus' authority, right? Uh, anytime any other Jewish rabbi were to, stand, were to sit down and begin to teach, he would have to read the, read the scriptures like I'm doing right now and try to explain what the scriptures say. And, and say, I'm getting my authority from what the Old Testament says. I'm getting my authority from what God has told Moses or from what God has told the prophets. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus sits down and he begins to teach of his own authority. He begins to teach from his own authority. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And then he doesn't say, but let me show you what the Bible really says. He says, but I say, if you've committed, if you've lusted after a woman, then you've already committed adultery in your heart. And so Jesus sits down on the mountain as the authoritative uh, as the authoritative rabbi, the, the, the one who is, who is there from, from God preaching. And I've already gotten ahead of myself a little bit because I've got some things written down here that I wanted to read you that other people say about that exact same thing. So, so listen to this. Here's how he's different than Moses. There, there are obviously some similarities as he's up on the mountain, Moses is up on the mountain, he's sitting down ready to teach, Jesus, or Moses is giving the Ten Commandments as a representative for the people. But listen, listen to how he's different. This is, this is Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry said, When the law was given, the Lord came down upon the mountain. 
Now, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord went up. Then he spoke in thunder and lightning. But now, in the Sermon on the Mount, he speaks in a still, small voice. And, and I love, I love this, this part. It says, then the people were ordered to keep their distance. But now they were invited to draw near. A blessed change. He says, no bounds were set about this mountain to keep the people off as were about Mount Sinai. If you remember when Moses was receiving the Ten Commandments, he went up to the top of the mountain and God came down on the mountain and, and gave him the Ten Commandments. But there, there were boundaries set up around the mountain. And, and Moses, before Moses ever went up, he said, you can't come any further than this. If you do come further than this, then you will die. Don't let your animals come further. If your animals come close, come further than this, then they will die. You cannot get close to God. And Matthew Henry is saying this is a big difference because in, when, when Moses was given the Ten Commandments, there were these, these boundaries set up, these limits set up where you cannot come close to God. And he says here on the Sermon on the Mountain, Jesus is sitting on the mountain and, and, and the crowds are gathering to him. They're encouraged to come to him, which is, a, which is a really big change. He says, no bounds were set about this mountain to keep the people off as were about Mount Sinai. For through Christ, we have access to God, not only to speak to him, but also to hear from him. Also to hear from him. And so there's, there, there's a big difference here. Right? There, there's some similarities, but there's a big difference. Jesus is speaking of his own authority. Jesus is inviting the people to come to him. Jesus is, is sitting down teaching authoritatively. Okay? And so, so what does he say? Let's look at the first, let's look at the first beatitude. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Really short, uh, not a lot to it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so what I want to do uh, is, is just take those three sections and talk about what do those mean. What does it mean to be blessed? What does it mean to be poor in the spirit? And then what does it mean when he says the kingdom of heaven shall be theirs? Okay. And so this, this word blessed, what, is, what does this word blessed mean? It's, it, it's not really a word that we use a lot in everyday life. We use it, uh, we use it in, in church. We sing it in songs and things like that. Um, and we might even use it in, in everyday life, but if we do use it in everyday life, what we mean is we're, we're, we, have, we have stuff, right? Or, or good things are happening to us, okay? And, and, and that's, that's okay. I mean, that, that, that's, that's a pretty good, pretty good way to, to think of it even within the Beatitudes. Um, but but may, maybe you've heard many people say and explain that what this word actually means is happy, right? Happy are those, happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of of heaven. And, th- and that's really good. That's really good. That's what the word means. And, that, and that's really good. Um, but, I, but I think that's, that, that sounds to me, or it seems to me just a little, a, kind of a little trite, right? When we think of, of someone being happy, um, it, 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 for whatever reason, I, just, I, don't, I don't really like that, that as much. Okay? And so then we can move and say, well, well, maybe not happy, but joyful. Maybe joyful is better because you can be joyful even when you're sad or you can be joyful even when you're, when you're not happy, right? And, and, that, and that's better maybe. Another, another really good word that we might could use would be peaceful. And especially if you think about peace the way the Old Testament talks about peace, shalom, the, the way the Jewish people talked about peace. When the Jewish people thought about peace, they, that, that word means, means wholeness or perfection or completeness or, or to be fulfilled. And that would be good. But here's what I like. Here's, here's what I think is, is, is best. And you can disagree, and that's okay. But here's, here's what I like. I like the word satisfied. I like the word satisfied. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for, their, for they shall inherit the earth. I like the word satisfied. Satisfied are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think I just said, for theirs is the earth, when it's not. Satisfied are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I, I like that word satisfied. It means, satisfied means content, right? We're content. Even though we're poor in spirit, we're content with our, with our poverty. And we'll talk about that in a minute, but, but it means content. It means, it means that we have ample provision. We have whatever we need. We don't need 
anything. We have assurance, right? We're satisfied. We're assured. We're fulfilled. We're provided for. Again, we have no needs. Okay? And so, and so I think when, when Jesus says that, that these people, and we'll talk about what does it mean in a minute and what they are, when he says these people will be blessed or will be, will be happy, I, I, th- I think a really good way of thinking that is that they will be satisfied. These people will be satisfied. Everything that they need, everything that they even desire, all of their desires will be met. All of their needs will be met. They will be completely, totally, uh, 100% satisfied. Okay, so who are they? Who are these people who are going to be blessed? Who are these people who are going to be satisfied this way? Okay, and he says, blessed are or satisfied are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit. So what in the world does it mean to be poor in spirit? Okay, right off the bat, this goes against what our world tells us, right? It goes against what our world tells us. Our world would tell us that if someone is is poor in spirit, and again, we'll talk about what that means in a minute, but if anyone's poor in any way, then they're not blessed at all. Right? Our world says that, that what it means to be blessed is that you have a big house, you have a nice car, you have a good-looking husband, good-looking wife, you have some smart kids that are good at athletics and are, and are, are, are popular with everybody. That, that's kind of what it means to be blessed. Right? That, that's what our world tells us. That's what it means to be blessed. They say that someone is blessed or, or satisfied by having a, a, a really good, really high self-esteem or, or a really good, really high self-image. Right? Kids especially, we, we talk like this with kids especially. We should never tell a kid that, 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 that they're not great at something, right? We always tell kids how great they are, how worthy they are, how, how, how good they are. We always give kids praise no matter what, right? And so even to the point to where, to where it's, sometimes people say that, that you can't really even give out awards to kids, right? But even like in athletics or anything else, you can't, you can't label someone best or someone else uh, not as good. Because, because this is what it means to be blessed, and we want all of our, all of our kids to be blessed. Okay? It also goes, goes against uh, thinking about the, the blessing going to someone who, who, who's poor in spirit. That kind of goes against what some who claim Christ would say. Right? There's some people who claim Christ who would say that, that to be blessed means that God's given you a lot of stuff. Right? Think, about, think about the so-called prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel says that, that again, blessings from God are, are evidenced in physical uh, and, and monetary ways. If God blesses you, then he's going to give you nice things. If God blesses you, then he's going to give you lots of money. In fact, they, the, the, these preachers say that God wants you to be wealthy, and God wants you to have nice things, and God wants you to have lots of things. And if you don't have those things, it's not because God's not trying to give them to you. It's because there's something wrong with you. You're not faithful enough, or you're not following him uh, closely enough, or or, or something like that. And so they say that these, the, these blessings from God, uh, the, the evidence of them are, are, again, big houses, nice cars, a good-looking wife, good-looking husband, lots of, lots, of, uh, lots of health, lots of money. Okay? They, they say that if God's blessing you, uh, then he's going to promote you in, in the business world. He's going to give you favor with people. He's going he's to promote you in the church. He's going to grant you favor with, with other people so that you'll be, you'll, you'll be good at whatever you set your mind to. And, and they say that you'll have a great life right now. That if God's blessing you, then you're going to have a great life right now. And if you don't have a great life right now, then God's not blessing you. And if God's not blessing you right now, it's not because he doesn't want to. It's because you're doing something wrong. And that's wrong, right? That's wrong. Jesus says here that the blessed person, the satisfied person, the one who is, who is blessed by God, is the poor in spirit. Okay? What is, so, so, then, so, so then what does it mean to be poor in spirit? What does it mean to be 
poor in spirit. And, and so when, when, when Jesus is saying that, he's not necessarily talking about physical or, or, or being, being poor in, in money. He's not saying that we don't have things. He's not saying we don't have, we don't have money. He's not saying we don't have nice things. Although he does say, Jesus does say that, that it's hard for a rich person to get into heaven. Right? He does say that it's hard. He doesn't say it's impossible, but he says it's hard for a rich person to get into heaven. But he's not necessarily talking here about, about riches or about, or about, um, or about money. Okay? Again, J.C. Ross says that, that when he talks about the poor in spirit, here's what he means. He means the humble. He means the humble. He means the lowly-minded. He means the self-abased. He means those who are deeply convinced of their own sinfulness in God's sight. These are they who are not wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight, he says. So J.C. Ross says that when Jesus talks about the poor in spirit, he's talking about the humble. Those who don't see themselves more highly than they, than they ought. I remember hearing a story a while ago about Lou Holtz. Lou Holtz was a, uh, was a football coach in, at Notre Dame for a long time, and then I think he coached at, at, North, at South Carolina for a few years, and now he's on ESPN. He does, uh, he's like a commentator and does pregame stuff on ESPN. He, he's, he's really well known for being a motivational speaker. He, he even goes to other teams now and does motivational speeches for other teams. I just, I just read this afternoon where he was doing a, a motivational speech here recently to, uh, to the players in the Ryder Cup. Right, they were going to these professional golfers who were going to compete in the Ryder Cup. But I heard this story about Lou Holtz. About one time, he was out he was out playing golf, and I forget who he was playing with, but he was playing with somebody that's famous, somebody that's a really good golfer. He was playing with him, and he wasn't having a very good game, wasn't playing very well at all. Right, and he was getting really mad about it, and even kind of embarrassing himself. Lou Holtz was, and and and, and he was saying that he, you know, he he wasn't hitting the ball very well. He had a really high score, just not doing well at all, and, and so he was really really mad at himself about it. And, and it was showing in the way that he was acting. He was throwing his clubs. He was, you know, hitting the ground with them. He was even, even swearing and, and things like that. Even so much that it just wasn't enjoyable to play with him. Right? I've never played golf before, so that, so, so I'm not really, I don't really understand how that works. But I, I think that's pretty common among golfers to be upset with how they play and frustrated with how they play. Uh, but, but this was happening to him, and it was showing in the way that he was acting. And, and finally, he said that the guy who was playing with, this professional golfer he was playing with, looked at him and said, "Why are you upset? Why are you mad?" And Lou Holt said, because I'm having a terrible game, right? And the guy said, yeah, but you're terrible at golf. You're not very good. Why are you upset? You're not very good. You're just playing the way that you should be playing, right? Your problem is not that you're playing a bad game of golf. Your problem is that you thought too highly of yourself to begin with, right? This happened to me just a few years ago when I was, uh, Josh was mentioning church league softball a, a little bit ago. And I've played church, church league softball for a few years. And, and I remember several years ago, we, were, we played a game and I didn't play very well. I never played very well. We were playing a game I didn't play very well, and I was really upset about it. I was really kind of mad about it, upset about it. I wasn't cussing or anything like that, I don't, I don't think. But I was really upset about it, right? And, and I was working, Josh and I were working together at, at, uh, at the furniture store, and then at Details then. And, and the next day at work, or maybe even at night at work, we basically had the same conversation where Josh Green said, why are you mad? You're terrible at softball, right? Why, why, do you, why should you think that you're going to have a good game? You never have a good game, so why are you mad that you didn't have a good game this time, Right? You're not good, so why are you mad about it? You played like you should play, and you're, like, surprised that you didn't play very well, right? And, and that's true. And, and the problem was that I was thinking too highly of myself, right? Lou Holtz was thinking too highly of himself when he was playing golf. I was thinking too highly of myself when I was playing, when I was playing softball, right? This is what it means to, to, to be poor in spirit, is to not think too highly of yourself. To not think too highly of yourself. Do you think too highly of yourself? Even, even in little bitty small things, do you think too highly of yourself? Right? Does it upset you or does it make you mad when, when people don't give you credit for things that you think you should get credit for? 
Does it upset you when people don't think you're as good or as talented or as gifted or as smart as you think you are? Does it bother you when someone else does something uh, that you think they should let you do? Does it bother you when someone else tries to take, tries to take your position or tries to do something that, that you should have a responsibility for? Does it bother you when somebody else corrects you or, or calls you out for something that you've done that's wrong or something you've done that's bad? Right? Do you think too highly of yourself? Do, are, are you easily offended? Are you easily offended over things that you shouldn't be offended by? If so, then maybe you're thinking too highly of yourself. Maybe you're not poor in spirit. Maybe you're too rich in spirit. Jesus says those who don't think too highly of themselves, those who are poor in spirit, Jesus says that they will be satisfied. Jesus says they will be blessed. According to to Grant Osborne, he says that this poverty in spirit, he says that it's a humility that leads God's people to depend wholly on him. It's a humility that leads God's people to, 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 uh, to lean wholly, depend wholly on him. Another commentator named Tasker, he says, they are those, these poor in spirit, they are those who recognize in their heart that they are poor in the sense that they can do no good thing without divine assistance and that they have no power in themselves to help them do what God requires them to do. Can do no good thing without God's assistance. And have no power in themselves, have no power in themselves to help them do what God requires them to do. This is the one who's poor in spirit. Paradoxically, right, it's a huge paradox, but it shouldn't be, but it is. That's what a paradox means. It's a huge paradox, but this is hard oftentimes for believers. Oftentimes it's really hard for believers to be poor in spirit. There's a temptation for us as believers, there's a temptation for us to think that, to, to feel like we have things in our lives together. There's a temptation for us to feel like we have everything in our lives together. We're often tempted to think that we're better than other people because we're God's people. Because we're believers in Christ, we're tempted to think that we're better than other people. Because God's working in us, because God's doing something inside of us, right? Because we've never been to jail. We think that, that maybe we're better than someone who has been to jail. Because we don't get drunk and do things that, that we regret later. We think that maybe we're better than people who do that. Because we don't get in arguments or fights at Circle K over here. Right? We think that we're better than people that do. And people do that all the time there. Right? And, and we think that because we're God's people and because we don't do those things, we think that, that somehow we're better than those people when we're not at all. What that means is that God's working in us. What that means is that God's working in us. There's a tendency, there's a danger for good Christian people to look down our noses at people if we're not careful. One thing I've been doing here, here lately, and I'm not even really sure, 100% sure how I feel about it, but I've, but I've been doing it. Um, I think I know how I feel about it. But, but one thing I've been doing lately is I've been taking some students of, uh, at the school where I work, and on Friday mornings or, or other weekday mornings, maybe when we're out of school for, for some reason, if they, want, if they want to go, they've been asking to, to take them. I've been driving a couple of students to the abortion clinic down in, in downtown Louisville, right? And it's, it's heartbreaking. It's awful what, what the people you see walking in there, right? And so, I, and, and so there's these two students especially. I think there's been four that have gone. But these two especially want to go anytime they can. And they take guitars and they, and they play music and they sing praise songs out on the sidewalk outside the abortion clinic. Um, they, they talk to people as, as they're coming in, try to talk them out of getting an abortion. And, and one thing that I, that I try to make a point to do not every time, 
but but often I try to make a point to before before I go there or, or as I'm driving there or as I park and before I get out of the car, I pray that that God would help me not to see myself better than anyone else. I pray that God would not 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 let me start to think that that I'm different than someone else just because they're there to get an abortion and I'm there to try to talk them out of it. Because it, what I'm trying to say is if it weren't for if it weren't for what God's doing in us, then we're no different than anybody else. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. That's what it means to be poor in spirit, to realize that, that we shouldn't think too highly of ourselves, right? And, and the truth is, it's impossible to think too lowly of ourselves, right? It's impossible to think too lowly of ourselves, but it's very, very easy to think too highly of ourselves. As believers, what it means to be poor in spirit, as believers, we have to file spiritual bankruptcy. We have to declare ourselves completely, totally, 100% bankrupt before God. We have to admit that and, and even embrace and kind of celebrate the fact that anything good in us is only there because of God's working in our lives. And that if it weren't for God's grace in us, who knows where we'd be right now, what we'd be doing, but we wouldn't be here, right? If it, if it weren't for God's grace in us, we wouldn't be here. You're not here right now in a church service on a Sunday night because of how good you are. I'm not here because of, of how much I like it. I'm here and you're here because God has done something in us to cause us to like it. And God has done something in us to cause us to want to be here. And we can't take credit for that at all. We can't think ourselves uh, in any way special or in any way uh, uh, worthy of, uh, of being here. Because the only reason that we're here, the only, only thing that we're, that, that we're doing at all on behalf of God is because of what God's doing in us. One of the commentators that I, that I was reading, um, you don't have to turn here. This is a parable you're familiar with. One of the commentators on this Matthew passage that I was reading, he, taught, he was talking about how the Beatitudes are, uh, and the Sermon on the Mount is a sermon on the kingdom. Explaining what the kingdom is like, explaining how to get in the kingdom, explaining what to, how people within the kingdom of God live. And, and, and Jesus is, is known for, for telling parables, for teaching in parables. And some of his parables, we're going to look at, at two or three parables in Mark here in a minute that, that are the parables of the kingdom. Okay, but, but here's another one. And he said that, this commentator said that, that this passage about being poor in spirit, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? He said that this is best illustrated, best explained by a parable that Jesus told in Luke. So listen, listen to this parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18. You're probably familiar with it, but he says, uh, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Right? That's somebody that thinks too highly of themselves. Someone who trusts in themselves for, for, for righteousness and someone who, who, who treated others with contempt. Jesus said, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, if, and if you know, Pharisees were the, one, were the religious people. Pharisees were the good people, the, the followers of God. The Pharisees were God's people in their minds. And the tax collectors were the, the, the sinners, almost the, the lowest, worst thing you could think of. And so two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed like this. He said, God, thank you that I'm not like other men. Thank you that I'm not an extortioner, I'm not unjust, I'm not an, an adulterer. And thank you, God, that I'm not even like this tax collector sitting over here beside me. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you this, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. 
in that parable, the tax collector was poor in spirit. The tax collector was poor in spirit. The Pharisee was not. The Pharisee was haughty in spirit. The Pharisee was proud in spirit. The tax collector was poor in spirit. And Jesus says the poor in spirit, they're the ones that will be blessed. The poor in spirit, they're the ones that will be satisfied. They're the ones that will be happy. The poor in spirit. So I just ask that question then. Are, are you like that man? Are you like that man? Which one of those two men in that parable are you most like? When you came to worship tonight, when you come here to worship, do you come thinking that, uh, do, do you thank God that you are the way that you are? Do you thank God that you are different than other people? Do you come humbly realizing that you should not belong here? Other than for the fact that God himself has called you and brought you here. Right? And there's a good way to thank God for the work he's doing in you. Right? We want to say that for sure. There's a good way to thank God for the, for, for the way that he's working in you. But the good way that we thank God for how he's working in us is by admitting and stating and realizing that he's not working in us because of us. And that any good in us is only because of him. Do you see yourself as spiritually bankrupt? Empty of any good? Empty of even any desire for good? Every one of us. Jesus says that these are the people who will be satisfied. These are the people who are, who are blessed. And then to finish up, Matthew chapter 5, the very, the very end of this parable, or not parable, the very end of this beatitude, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for or because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the poor in spirit, the ones who don't think too highly of themselves, the ones who, who realize their own spiritual bankruptcy and, and, and declare that, those are the ones who will be satisfied. Those are the ones who will be blessed. And so what does it mean to be blessed? What does it mean to be satisfied in this beatitude? In what way will the poor in spirit be satisfied? And he tells us the way that they're satisfied is because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. They're satisfied because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. The other eight or nine beatitudes that, that, that we'll look at in the next few weeks, those all describe what the kingdom's like. They describe how we're supposed to live in the kingdom. But this first one, what the first one does, the first one tells us how do we get into the kingdom? How do we become members of the kingdom? How do we become subjects of the king? We must humble ourselves, we must realize and admit that we're not worthy of the kingdom. And we submit ourselves to the one who is worthy, the king. Matthew Henry says, the only, the only ones who are fit to be members of Christ's church, which is called the congregation of the poor, the kingdom of glory, is prepared, is, is prepared for, for them. They only, the ones that are poor in spirit, are fit to be members of Christ's church, which is called the congregation of the poor. The kingdom of glory is prepared for them. This kingdom that satisfies us, the kingdom that we're blessed to receive, is a, is a perfect kingdom. It's a perfect kingdom. It says that all of our needs will be met there. All of our desires will be fulfilled there. Not by getting what we want, but because our desires will be changed. Our desires will be, will be conformed into, in, into what we should want. All of our tears will be wiped away, never to return. The Bible says that. But the best part about the kingdom... The best part about being in the kingdom is that we're united to our king. Revelation chapter 21 says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The best part about being in the kingdom is that we get God. We get to be with God. We get to be with our king Jesus. Okay? But look at what it says, though, closely. Because the kingdom's coming, right? The kingdom's coming. The kingdom's coming. Revelation talks about how the kingdom's going to come. The new Jerusalem, the new heaven's coming down. But look, look closely what it says there in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
It doesn't say for theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. It says for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so the kingdom's coming for sure. The kingdom's coming for sure, but the kingdom already is here. The kingdom already is here too. And if, if we're believers in Christ, then we're part of the kingdom. We're members of the kingdom. Later in this same, in this same um, sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches his, his disciples how to pray. And he says, pray like this. And one of the things you're supposed to pray is, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So there's a sense in which the kingdom is here already. He doesn't say it will be theirs. He says that it is theirs. Okay? Really quickly, to, to close out, I want to read two parables from Mark. They're both really short. We actually read them this morning in, in church. Mark chapter 4, starting in Mark chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 24. This is Jesus explaining what the kingdom of God is like in these parables, okay? And he said, Jesus said in Mark 4, 26, I'm sorry, Mark 4, 26. And Jesus said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And in verse 30, he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? He said, it's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. And so he gives these, these two parables, these two descriptions of what the kingdom of, of heaven or what the kingdom of, of God is like. And so the, the question tonight for you and for me is, just like this tiny little mustard seed, has the kingdom of heaven taken root in your heart? Has the kingdom of God taken root in your heart? Over the next few weeks, we're going to look at, at different beatitudes. We're going to look at, at, at different sayings of Jesus. And they all speak to the character of the members of God's kingdom, the way that those in the kingdom are to live, the way that the subjects of the king should, should act and, and should live. Right? But the first question that, that you have to ask, the first question that I have to ask, is are we in the kingdom at all? There's only one way to get in. And Jesus says that the kingdom belongs to the poor in spirit. The kingdom belongs to those who have filed spiritual bankruptcy, who have bowed down to the king, submitted themselves to the king, relying on the merits of Christ alone, of the king alone, not seeking, not seeing ourselves as worthy in any small way at all, and the danger even in thinking that, the danger even in answering that question is, are you poor in spirit or are you not? The, the danger in answering that question is, even if I say, yes, I'm poor in spirit, the danger is now that begins to make me think I'm better than the person who's not poor in spirit, which, which shows us the depth of our sin. And, and, and even that we have to push away and say, no, God, I'm not even worthy. Even if I'm poor in spirit, it's because of what you've done in it. It's because you've humbled me, not because I've humbled myself. It's because you've changed my heart. You've given me that new living heart like Josh read about this morning from Ezekiel 36. And so the question is, has the kingdom taken root in your heart? Like that tiny little mustard seed, has it taken root in your heart? And is, is it growing? Is it branching out? Right? Jesus said that the mustard seed takes root, it grows, and it begins to branch out. It says it becomes the largest uh, tree and the, the largest plant in the garden. Has that seed taken root in your heart? Is it growing? Is it branching out into all the other parts of your life? Is it branching out into the way that you act, the way that you think, the way that you speak, the way that you treat other people, the way that you think about yourself, the way that you think about other people? Are you in the kingdom? Are you poor in spirit? Have you filed spiritual bankruptcy? Let's pray. 
Father God, we thank you so much tonight. And God, we, uh, we don't even really know what to thank you for because we should thank you for everything. God, the fact that you created us, you gave us life to begin with. Father, you gave us the ability to see your greatness and to see your mercy and to see your grace. Father, you woke us up this morning. Your word says that your mercies are new every single day. And God, you woke us up and gave us life even today that we can experience your mercy again for another 24 hours. Father, we thank you for that. And God, we also thank you that you have created your church. And God, you've created a way for us to not only see your goodness, Father, but rejoice in it and love it and, and, and like it. And Father, we confess that that unless you do that work in us, then that's not going to happen. We're not going to cause ourselves to be on your side. We're not going to cause ourselves to like what you say. Father, we're not going to cause ourselves to trust in you and to believe you and to follow you and to live the type of life that you call us to. God, all of that happens only because of what you've done in us. And so, God, I pray for, for us here, for, for, for myself first and, and for all of us secondly. Father, I pray that you would protect us from thinking too highly of ourselves. God, might I never think that I am anything good because of what I've done. Father, but anything good that can be found in me is because you've done it, and all I've done with it is tried to mess it up. So, God, we pray that, that you would please help us to think that way. Father, we thank you that you've opened up your kingdom. God, we thank you that at one time there were boundaries set up where people couldn't come close enough to you, but now you've invited people in. Father, I pray that every single one of us here today would, would, would see ourselves rightly, see ourselves in the light of who you say we are. Father, fallen, sinful people who are, who are spiritually, morally bankrupt and have nothing good to offer. Even as the song says, Father, all we bring to you is just empty hands clinging to the cross as our, as our, as our cleansing, Father, clinging to Christ as our Savior. Father, we thank you. We pray that you would uh, make us to be good subjects of our King. Father, we thank you in the name of our King, Jesus Christ. Amen.